Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, happy Friday. It's May 22nd. Lots of news again this week. There were three stories in particular that sort of piqued our interest. So we're going to focus on these. First of all, geo platforms of India. Second, a hyperfast shift toward remote work. And last, a look at Stitch Fix, which is the former employer of this week's special guest, Julie Bornstein, who spent four years as the company's COO and has just launched her own new e-commerce platform called The Yes. Alex, let's talk geo. Sure. On Friday, KKR announced that it will invest $1.5 billion in geo platforms. This follows earlier investments by the likes of Silver Lake, Vista Equity Partners, and General Atlantic. And a month ago, an investment of $5.7 billion by none other than Facebook. These investments value geo platforms at around $65 billion, which is pretty sizable. People are really fascinated with geo platforms. It's really a very unique company because it essentially dominates the internet and telecom industries. It's given away these services for free in exchange for trying to upsell consumers on other services such as a Netflix and Pandora-like service. Also, people are really interested in geo because there was a recent regulation that was passed in India that made it much more favorable for local-based e-commerce businesses. This threatens the dominance of Flipkart, which has teamed up with Amazon to control over 60% of the e-commerce market in India. Yeah, Geo is super interesting. It's this telecom network, which to your point, is massively dominant. It has more than 388 million 4G subscribers, and that's just since launching in 2016. What's really interesting about this is you can understand its appeal. So this company, as you said, wants to start offering all kinds of things. It's going to be this massive digital platform. American investors obviously want a piece. But I think we're all wondering, hmm, isn't it strange how these announcements are coming out in dribs and drabs? Just today, as you mentioned, mentioned KKR made an investment. I think earlier this week on Monday, it was announced that General Atlantic had made its investment. Before that, it was Vista Equity. Before that, it was Silver Lake. And of course, way back, maybe five weeks ago, it was Facebook. I think what I'm most curious about is what the strategy is in announcing all of these things. I have to assume that at least four of these investments were maybe made around the same time, given that they were all investing at the same valuation. Do you have any thoughts, Alex? Well, we know that Reliance Industries is an investor in geo platforms and has a significant debt of $20 billion, which Mukesh Ambani, the CEO, wants to pay down. So I think he is interested in raising the profile of geo platforms, but he's also interested in paying down this debt. Right. Well, he might have luck toward that end. The Financial Times just reported that Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund and Mubadala, the sovereign wealth fund of Abu Dhabi, are reportedly taking large stakes or thinking about taking large stakes of around $1.5 billion and $1.2 billion respectively. But I think another thing is Ambani has talked about taking geo public. And I think he has talked about a timeline of five years. I wonder if he is trying to keep geo in the headlines to speed up a potential offering. But Alex, I also think what's really interesting about this company, which I will admittedly know very little about, and I'm still learning, is this backstory between the brothers Mukesh Ambani and Anil Ambani, who apparently is now pleading poverty in a case that's been brought against him by China Development Bank. 
I'd seen a story in the Economic Times a couple of months ago where his lawyer was saying this guy was worth $7 billion in 2012. He's now worth $89 million, but really his net worth is zero once his liabilities are taken into account. What happened? Yeah, there's a fascinating backstory to Reliance and Geo. Reliance was originally a conglomerate, and Mukesh Ambani and his brother Anil were running the company, but they were at odds. So their mother decided that they should split up the company. Mukesh was given the oil portfolio, and Anil was given the telecom portfolio. But it seems like Mukesh wasn't able to let things go because he soon teamed up with a also-ran internet service provider, which had mysteriously acquired a huge amount of spectrum in India. And together, Mukesh and this company, rebranded as Geo, drove Anil out of the telecom business. And Anil subsequently ended up bankrupt. That is fascinating. And also, wow, talk about tough love. In any case, this is a huge deal. It threatens to unseat Flipkart, which is owned by Walmart, and Amazon, and it positions Geo to be the lead player in e-commerce in a very huge market. And that's a huge deal for Facebook, given that it now owns something like 10% of the company. But moving on, Facebook is actually the star of our next story about remote work. This is a massive, massive story, the implications of which I think we're not going to fully appreciate for some time. But yesterday during a televised town hall style meeting that Zuckerberg has maybe weekly with Facebook's 48,000 employees, but made public yesterday, he talked exclusively about remote work and Facebook's vision of the future in which the company sees upwards of 50% of its employees working full-time on a remote basis within five to 10 years. Facebook is just one company that is talking about remote work. Earlier this week, we also saw Coinbase saying that it's going to move to a remote-first policy. Also, Shopify, the Ottawa-based e-commerce giant, said that it's going digital by default and that it will keep its offices closed until 2021 and after that allow most employees to work from home. When you have the biggest tech companies in the world moving in this direction, you can expect that many others are going to follow suit. Yeah, this is a particularly big move for Facebook, which was intent on motivating its employees to come to the office. In fact, it gave employees a $10,000 bonus if they moved close to to the Menlo Park campus. It also crammed its employees together, giving them only 150 square feet of space, which is considerably lower than what most companies allot to employees. So it's going to have a big impact on Facebook. Facebook has said that it's going to try and recreate some of the spirit of its office by doing things like having virtual meet and greets when it's interviewing new employees. I can't even imagine what that is like. Yeah, he talked about the fact that recruiting is very difficult. And I think that's one of the jobs that he wants to keep close to headquarters or within headquarters. He mentioned a number of roles where employees really can't move. Business development, recruiting, hardware development, data centers, policy. But there will be a lot of people who join Facebook from other parts of the U.S. And he mentioned Canada. They're opening hubs in Dallas, Denver, Atlanta, it was interesting. I mean, you can absolutely see his point. There's a lot that he wants to accomplish with this. One aspect of it is to lessen employees' carbon emissions, which is interesting. But, you know, something like 17% of emissions have dropped in this lockdown situation. He mentioned, you know, not wanting employees sitting in traffic and poisoning the atmosphere. Also, 
he talked about wanting to diversify the workforce more aggressively. And he wasn't just talking about geographically or racially or in terms of gender, but he thinks that by enriching Facebook employees nationally, it could actually have impacts on social and political climates in those areas. Well, Connie, do you think he's also excited about the idea of paying employees less to live in remote places? Definitely. I Well, I shouldn't say he's definitely looking forward to it, but he did talk about localizing compensation, which is not a brand new concept, but of course will save Facebook if it's adjusting pay based on where people live. And in fact, I'm writing a story in TechCrunch about that right now. It's something that, again, because Facebook is doing it, we can expect to see more of. Not everyone thinks that's a terrific idea. A longtime recruiter who I spoke with yesterday, John Holman, was saying that it's dangerous terrain. He said, even if you invoke the geographic disparity arithmetic, he said, what if a new openness to telecommuting means that more women or people of color can aspire to some of these jobs? He said, are you going to pay them less than they're mostly white and Asian American engineers in the Bay Area? I doubt it. So you could see this creating problems for Facebook down the line. Also, I do wonder if Facebook decides to pay engineers less, for example, if other companies, Google, will come in and pay them more. So I think no matter what Facebook's intentions, the market's going to end up paying what the market pays for these employees. Well, I think also Facebook is looking forward to avoiding a lot of the political battles that it's had in the Bay Area over real estate and how it treats employees. Maybe so. But interestingly, Facebook is really on top of employee sentiment. Mark Zuckerberg talked a lot about this in his town hall meeting yesterday, and a huge percentage of them said that they were willing to work full-time. I think it was something like 20 to 40% basically said they either definitely wanted to work full-time remote or they would be open to the idea. And a huge percentage of that percentage said that they would be very likely to leave the area if given the option to do so, which leads to a lot of other extenuating circumstances potentially. I mean, think about in addition to commercial real estate in the Bay Area, which we've talked about a lot, housing becoming, I guess, more affordable at long last, which would be terrific. You could also see this being very bad news for the rideshare companies, which are dependent on urban centers where people are commuting to work. I mean, this could really decimate Uber and Lyft over time. It's certainly going to decimate the budgets of city governments that are trying to cope with the loss of huge taxpayers like Facebook. Yeah, that is a great point. There's also just little ripple effects like, you know, designers designing more for the home office. Business Insider had an interesting story this week about a firm that is selling more ergonomic desk chairs and, and good lighting to people as they upgrade their home offices. Interestingly, even subscription type services that cater to people who work outside of the home could be impacted. The Wall Street Journal did a really interesting story on Stitch Fix, for example. Like a lot of e-commerce companies, it's benefited from this stay-at-home period, at least it, it had in, the, in recent months. But I think it's starting to see a slowdown in customer spending as, of course, this situation drags on and uncertainty lingers. But it was making the point that Stitch Fix is catering to a customer who orders clothes on a monthly basis, assuming they're going to be in public and working alongside colleagues and out in the world. If that's no longer the case for a huge percentage of its customer base, that's going to impact its bottom line. Stitch Fix is already making some adjustments to its model. It's letting people buy one article of clothing at a time. For example, if a customer has already purchased that item and it's a, an item that they're just buying in a different color, but it would seem that the company might have to really dramatically rethink what it's doing. 
I don't think the journal made the case that COVID-19 will fundamentally change Stitch Fix's business and mean that they have to completely rejigger their business. It's true that they are adapting to these changes by doing things like offering a la carte sales, and they are facing pressure from Amazon, but they do have a really loyal customer base of three and a half million clients and they're generating $1.6 billion in annual revenue. And also, they have a pretty variable cost structure. So they do have flexibility in how they run their business. Well, I think that's going to have to change. One thing that the journal highlighted was right now, they receive goods from manufacturers in their own warehouses. And an analyst suggested they should probably consider adding drop shipping, whereby inventory is sent to clients directly from the manufacturer or wholesaler. But either way, I think that it's true that there's probably going to be a smaller pool of clients looking for a service like this, at least for the next year or so until we get this sorted out. Well, that could be true. But at least lately, the market seems to be saying something else. The stock is up 75% since COVID-19 became a thing. And isn't that amazing? Stitch Fix has actually pulled guidance for the remainder of the year, citing fulfillment constraints. So there have been no new announcements from the company. This has just been sheer dent of people turning to e-commerce sites in the immediate aftermath of being locked in their homes. Which is a great segue to our conversation with Julie Bornstein, who has a fantastic record in e-commerce and was also most recently COO of Stitch Fix. Yes, Julie is really interesting. Before joining Stitch Fix as COO, she was a C-level executive at Sephora for five years or so. She has been with Urban Outfitters and Nordstrom in the past. And just this week, she unveiled her new startup, which is called The Yes. Julie and her technical co-founder, Amit Agarwal, described the company as a, quote, next-gen shopping experience poised to redefine the architecture of e-commerce and the way people buy, which admittedly sounds kind of grand, but it really is interesting. And in fact, the company's already raised $30 million from True Ventures, NEA, and a bunch of others. And I'm thinking if things go well, Julie will be in the market again in early 2021. <laughs> early 2021. But first, a word from our sponsor. of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte recommend investing into art, and it makes sense. Art has outperformed the S&P by over 180% since 2000, with virtually no correlation according to a 2019 Citibank study. But how can you access this insiders-only asset class generally reserved for billionaires? With Masterworks.io, an exclusive investment platform for multi-million dollar artworks from artists whose works have appreciated at 8 to 30% annually, get paid when the painting sells, or flip your shares on their secondary market. It's that simple. If you're looking to protect your portfolio from risk, take a look at real, tangible assets like art. You can invest in paintings by artists like Monet, Warhol, and Banksy today. Sign up and tell them Strictly VC sent you to skip their 15,000-person waitlist. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. 
So I've been waiting to see what you were building for about a year. You and I had talked about the fact that you were launching this really almost exactly a year ago, a little bit more than that. You announced your funding, $30 million from the likes of Forerunner Ventures, NEA, True Ventures last fall, and you've been hard at work and you're about to launch this thing called The Yes. So tell us what you have been building. What we're building is a new shopping platform. It's app only to start on iOS, and it is, in essence, a store built around each user. We have about 145 brands at launch, ranging from Gucci and Prada to Everlane and Levi's and many brands in between, wonderful brands, footwear, apparel, and we plan to help each user on board by filling out a great Q&A that's very fun and gives us very high signal information. And then each user has their own home feed and it's filled with themes and topics and products that are related to her because it's women's to start. And it's a great way both to discover styles and brands that you love and also search is really powerful and checkout is one click. And the entire thing is a sort of rethink of the way shopping ideally should be. Julie, who are you targeting exactly? What demographic? We are targeting women, really a very broad age range from 25 to 75, who care about fashion, whether they're in the know on everything, a fashionista, or they just want to look great. You know, you can shop high-low, which is how most women shop these days. So it depends what you're looking for. Whatever brands you know will help find you additional brands. But if you know and love certain brands, that will really help us to identify what other brands and styles and trends to share with you. And so it sounds like apparel exclusively to start. Are you also selling handbags, jewelry? Are you getting into accessories? We're focused on fashion and footwear, and we have accessories, handbags. A lot of our brands have great handbags, and then we will be expanding more to jewelry and other accessory categories over time. Great. And why app only? That's really interesting. When we started, we knew we needed to pick a channel. And as we thought about it, most of the e-commerce sites that have mobile presence really feel like a site converted to sort of a small screen. And what we really wanted to challenge ourselves with is if you leverage the technology of the sort of native app environment, you could build a much slicker experience for the user. It's also harder to build in sort of a smaller setting. And so we decided to build app first. We also know that mobile is certainly growing. It's about 50% of total purchases now in fashion. So while we know web will be important to add, we really felt like mobile and iOS were the places to start. My understanding is that Stitch Fix uses machine learning to analyze customer tastes, but it ultimately relies on human stylists to choose items. What new advances have been made in AI that can allow you guys to actually pick products using artificial intelligence? Because fashion, like music, is a very quote-unquote noisy problem. Consumers don't often know what they want. So it's a great question. The key importance is that we understand the right information to be able to show the consumer an experience that is valid to them. And so the stakes are higher than it was when we at Stitch Fix had a stylist to help put together a fix for a consumer. 
one of the things that we had to do to begin was to build the most extensive taxonomy that exists in fashion. We went out and we looked at the market. We talked to all the SaaS vendors who are trying to work on this, and we realized that we had to build it ourselves. So we worked with a team of fashion experts. Similar to, if you think about the way a Spotify or a Pandora with the music genome, you need expertise to get the right data input so that you can have the right output. And so that was the core part of the initial work. We then needed to build algorithms that understood all aspects of a product and its many dimensions, including using computer vision and training machines to understand how product looks and what style dimensions look like, as well as using computer vision to build the visual understanding of product. And by using text and computer vision, we basically have the ability to take in any product and compute its representation of style attributes. We can understand not only what dimensions go into any given product, but we can understand how similar those products are to each other. And then what we did was we actually built a set of questions that are rigorously tested to understand how to gather the most high signal information from each user so that as we start the process, once you come onto the app, we have a really good understanding of brand and style and topic and size that's going to fit you. And then the great thing about our platform is that is a learning platform. And so as you interact with it and you yes and no product that you like and you answer additional quiz questions, you are able to share more information with us and the product adapts to you over time. Julie, a lot of comparisons are probably going to be made between the Yes and Stitch Fix, given that you spent four years there previously as the COO. Stitch Fix also employs quite a bit of AI, asks customers what they want to buy. They do employ humans in the process. What was the impetus for this business? What did you feel that Stitch Fix wasn't doing? Was it more a matter of eliminating that personal touch, automating that? It's quite different, actually. I had such a great experience at Stitch Fix, and I'm still a shareholder and a big fan of the company and the team. And I think what they continue to do is terrific and really pushing the boundary on this concept of shopping as a service. What I am working on and our team is really focused on is the actual consumer shopping experience for consumers who want to shop. It's very focused on brands and creating a platform to support brands, which is less of a focus for the Stitch Fix consumer. There's a strong percent of the population who really loves to shop and wants the agency in their own selection. And that is really the consumer who we are going after. I think that there is a consumer that Stitch Fix really attracts where they say, do it for me. Tell me a little bit more about how the whole thing works. So you have 150 brands that you're launching with. What is your relationship with them exactly? Are you taking a cut of each transaction? Are they sending you things? Are you ever taking possession of them? Do you have a warehouse or warehouses? There were two things coming into this business that I wanted to avoid based on my personal experience, which was one, owning inventory, and two, reshooting every item for its own new photograph on the site. I realized that lots of different images look beautiful together if you build the right interface. Pinterest and Instagram and all these other very visual sites have shown us that. You know, the brands spend a lot of money shooting images to look a certain way to help communicate what their brand is all about. So leveraging those assets has been terrific. The second is 
leveraging each brand's inventory. So there's no reason to ship the product from the brand to another warehouse and then to the consumer. We're cutting out that step and it's shipping direct from the brand. So all of the brands are set up on drop ship, which gives us the ability to offer the entire collection from the brand. And our relationship with the brand is it's a, we have a contract and it's a partnership. And really our goal is to be the best partner to the brands. And so from a consumer standpoint, you order on our app and everything is one click and you are charged by the yes. But then the order is placed through the brand and it is shipped from the brand to you. And so you get the brand's packaging and the feel for the brand. And then we will communicate to you on when it's shipped, when it's arriving. And if you have any customer service issues, we take care of it. Shipping seems like it would be very complicated if you're dealing with a number of brands. Say I've got four items in my cart all from different labels. They're coming from the different stores, I guess, piecemeal, but you'll handle the returns. Is that correct? So as a customer, you will get items shipped to you directly from brands. So if you order two or three items, they may come. If they're all from different brands, they'll come from each brand. It's funny. There are two things that made me less worried about this. One is that when you order from Nordstrom or Amazon, you often get multiple boxes for one order. So unfortunately, I think because we're all trying to get inventory closer to the end user, that is happening anyway. But the second thing is that I got a box from one of the online retailers and it had seven items in it. And I was completely overwhelmed. I didn't have time to try seven items on. And so it sat for two weeks until I finally found the time to do it. And I found now that I'm ordering everything from the yes, I get an item, I try it on, I either love it and keep it or I return it, mostly I love it and keep it. So it hasn't been a problem. And then there's a return label in the box or you just go to your app and you print out the return label, super easy, and you send it back in the box that it was delivered in. And so we've really tried to streamline, streamline the process as much as possible. The one thing I was gonna mention from a technology standpoint that we had to build in order to leverage the full inventory assortment from each brand is an integration layer. So we built our own tool called Carousel Connect, which basically allows us to work with any brand with almost no work on their end. Great. Going back to shipping, just because it's such a cost center for a lot of companies, was there any thought to not offering free shipping? And is that a concern going forward? And if not, why not? My feeling is that free shipping and free returns is a baseline requirement to offer a great service. It's our job to help match you to product that you're not going to return. So we have an enormous goal to have the lowest return rate in the industry. And it will obviously take us some time to get there. But we believe that by making sure that we understand what works for you and what doesn't, we can get you all the right information up front to increase the likelihood of both the quality and the fit of the product matching your needs. And in the meantime, I think that it is too much of an inhibitor for shopping online if you have to pay to shop or return, and it limits your willingness to try new services. So it feels really like a requirement for me. I just wanted to follow up on Connie's question about your business model. Are you paid a cut of each transaction or a subscription fee by the various brands? And does this deal vary from brand to brand? And then also, have you thought about simply becoming an infrastructure layer for some of these brands rather than having to spend what I would imagine to be a huge portion of the $30 million you've raised on marketing and building awareness for the yes. 
Great questions. We have spent most of our money to date on people. So we have a team of 35 and it's really the engineering product design and partnership talent that's taken our money so far. I'm a big believer if you build a great consumer experience, people will come. And so our initial launch is almost entirely organic. Obviously, we will spend on marketing over time, but we need to make sure that the product converts and that people love it before we start trying to reach new consumers. What I would say on the business model is that we charge a flat commission rate on everything that we sell. It's really important for us to have one rate because we want the brands to trust us and to feel that the system is fair and we only make money on a sale. So Julie, when we talked last, as I mentioned, it was more than a year ago, and we obviously didn't know that we were all heading into this situation with this pandemic. How has this current reality, I guess, altered your plans? This is not what you were imagining, obviously. No, it is not. I don't know that any of us could have possibly. I would say while we're all dealing with our own sense of gratitude and guilt and all the other emotions that are happening as a result of COVID. From a business standpoint, there have been a number of, I would say, impacts. The first is that we did delay our launch. So we were originally launching in March. And obviously, once COVID hit, we just, you know, needed to make sure we could see straight and understand the impact. I think as time has passed, we have felt more and more compelled to get out there to help our brands, all of whom are feeling the impact of the retail stores closing, of orders being canceled by their retail partners. And they're all businesses and many of them small businesses. So we want to help them. It's also an interesting time because we all need a little bit of levity and escape. And so the app is really a fun escape. You've raised $30 million. This was last year, Series A. A lot of investors listen to Strictly VC and and read the newsletter. Are you going to be raising another round anytime soon? In this market, do you have to sort of gain some momentum, some traction first before that happens? The logic behind the dollar amount that we raised was how much do we need to build what we want to do and then bring it to market and get traction. And so that is our goal. That starts tomorrow when we launch. Our focus will be very much on the product itself and understanding user feedback, continuing to add brands, but continuing to add features and improve the features. What we have today will look different from what we have in a month. My true belief is you build a great product, people will come. We don't have to raise money right away. We will look to raise money probably early next year as we think about expansion. Terrific. Thank you so much, Julie. Yep. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks, everyone. Yes, thanks, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. We are not publishing Strictly VC on Monday. Just note, we are observing Memorial Day, as we hope most of you are as well. But we will be back in your inbox on Tuesday, and we'll have another Strictly VC download for you next Friday. Take care.